This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and this is the podcast where we're walking through the book of Genesis. Last time we looked at Genesis 1 through 3, and today we're going to talk about the rest of that first chapter of Genesis, these first words of God in Scripture, and on a little bit into uh, chapter 2. Before we do, there is an old cliche that people uh, will sometimes use, there are two kinds of people out there in the world. And uh, the most interesting sort of rendering of that that I've seen in, uh, in recent days was an article by Dahlia Lithwick, I think it was in Slate Magazine, with the Muppet theory to explain everything. And what she argues is, if you'll notice on any of the, the Muppet uh, franchise uh, programs, whether Sesame Street or The Muppet Show or the, the various Muppet Show movies or, uh, or, or television programs, that you really have two different kinds of these puppets. You have Chaos Muppets and Order Muppets. So the Chaos Muppets are those that are volatile and unpredictable. So uh, you think of Cookie Monster and Grover and Animal on the, on the drums. And then you have the Order Muppets that are regimented and a little bit neurotic. So think of Bert or Kermit or Sam the Eagle. And what she argues is that any workspace is going to succeed with the right ratio of order Muppets to chaos Muppets because order and creativity need each other. And if you if you have too much of one, if you have too much unpredictability, then you're just going to have a wreck. You're not going to be able to, to get anything done. And if you have too much order, then you're not going to have the sort of freedom that you need uh, to actually create something. And actually, too much of the one leads to the other. Uh, you can see that even in terms of uh, parenting. So if you have this really, really hyper strict and kind of authoritarian sort of parenting, often what that leads to is licentiousness and just just kids going crazy as soon as they can. And if you have uh, too much uh, unpredictability, then what you're going to see is a longing for order. And, and there, there sometimes is going to be too much order then that is brought together. Well, I found that article interesting because I think what she's tapping into is a reality that uh, in some way, the Bible speaks about about that need for. I wouldn't use the word chaos because chaos is contrasted with cosmos. I think everything is ordered by God, but I would say that there's this uh, balance in Scripture between mystery and intelligibility, or mystery and order, and we we need uh, both of those things. And I would argue that Genesis chapter 1 shows us that. It it gives us an orderliness of the created universe, makes sense of the universe, but calls us to a kind of awe uh, in front of this mysterious uh, creativity uh, behind all of it. So let's uh, let's pick up reading here in Genesis 1-3 that says, 
And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit, which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth and there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host with them. 
And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done on creation. So notice what's what's happening here is that you have this ordering of creation, this, this calling together of everything by the word of God, but it's building so that you have God in each of these days building toward, uh, toward a, a climax uh, here of the story of um, the man and the woman as being uh, the pinnacle of God's creation made in his own image. So what's important here is not just that there's an order, but that there's a narrative order, meaning that there's a narrative view of reality here, which is a very different sort of understanding than, say, a Buddhist uh, understanding uh, of, of reality or, or a lot of, uh, of other ways of seeing reality that sees, uh, sees reality as being cyclical. But a, a biblical view of reality sees it as being fundamentally narrative, which means that there's, uh, there's an order, there's a building order, and there's also a, a meaning to it. So if you think of E.M. Um, e. Forster in his uh, book, Aspects of the Novel, talks about plot, and he says uh, that story is a narrative of events arranged in their time sequence— a plot is also a narrative of events, but with the emphasis falling on causality. So he uses this example. The king died and then the queen died is a story. The king died and then the queen died of grief is a plot. You see? And he says even more so, the queen died. No one knew why until it was discovered that this was through grief at the death of the king. He says, this is a plot with a mystery in it, a form capable of high development, and it requires intelligence and memory. And that is the reason, I think, that we resonate with the idea of our lives as story is because the Bible is revealing that the whole universe is arranged in a plot-like sort of uh, ordering that God is is, uh, putting together, that the reality is real, and it's explained in terms of where it's coming from, in terms of the, uh, the announcement and the calling together by God, and it's also defined in terms of where it's going, even if you can't see where it's going. And, and in this case, we see this, um, this coherence of, of calling together each aspect, day one, day two, day three, uh, all the way through to day six. And we can see that even as that is building, the implication is uh, that it's all headed toward something, that God is is doing something. So you will have uh, some people who have looked at the text of Genesis who have said what you have uh, happening in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is God constructing the universe as a temple where, where God is going to 
dwell. I find those arguments persuasive, uh, that there's a sense in which, uh, but, but I find them persuasive largely because we see that theme later on in Scripture. I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. So God is is creating this material universe in order to dwell with us. But notice the way that God is, is ordering here. There's a separating, and there's a gathering. I had a, a friend uh, Sean Michael Lucas, who's now a, a Presbyterian pastor, a very prominent Presbyterian pastor, who uh, years ago I heard him, he's a historian, I heard him speaking about historians, and he said, um, I think he was citing someone else, but I don't remember who, that historians are all fundamentally either lumpers or splitters, uh, which is to say you either sort of lump people together and say these movements or these figures are alike and here's why, or they're splitters who come in and say here are the distinctions between these people or between uh, these movements or between these nations or these time periods or, or whatever. Well, fundamental to creation is that sense of gathering on the one hand and separating on the other hand. So you have God, he is uh, separating the expanse from the dry land, for instance, the water from the dry land. He's uh, separating the light from the darkness, and he is naming them in terms of their differences. And at the same time, the text shows him gathering the water together. Well, when I see that, I see not only creativity and not only order, but I also see judgment. And I I recognize when I say judgment, some people are going to immediately recoil because when they hear judgment, what they hear is condemnation. And there's a reason why. I mean, the, the scripture often uses judgment that way. So um, the, the son came into the world not to judge the world, uh, but so that the world might through him be saved, John says, uh, for instance. And so uh, judge not unless you, be, unless you be judged, Jesus says. So there's a sense in which that is true, but that's not all that judgment does. What does judgment do? Jesus pictures the judgment as a separating the sheep from the goats, the the wheat from the tares. He says, don't try to separate the wheat from the weeds uh, until judgment, and God will do that. And it's an integrating, a, a bringing together revelation from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. That's judgment. And also what's included with judgment is a uh, a kind of naming so when you think about naming and you think about, uh, sometimes we think about names in just entirely arbitrary ways. And there's a reason for that. I mean, just look at human names. We have our proper names that we have. You can almost uh, track them in terms of generations. So uh, right now, as I'm recording this, I don't know many babies named Gladys. But we do have uh, a lot of people named Gladys who are in nursing homes. And I guarantee you, maybe even by the time you're listening to this, depending on when you listen to it, Gladys will be back uh, in terms of names. These things tend to be uh, cyclical as they, uh, as they go about. We think of it sometimes just in terms of, 
culture, in terms of an arbitrary sort of this is a name that I would want to give to a person or a name that I would want to give to something. But if you think about what naming actually does is naming does exactly what we just talked about. It separates and it it integrates. It says this is something that is like this and it's something that is not like that. So that's what, when we come into Genesis 2, uh, humanity is going to be doing in terms of the animals. Adam is naming the animals, giving them order. But God is doing that first. God is doing that here. He is calling uh, one thing day and calling the other thing night. He's giving it order in terms of the name that he is giving to it. And what's assumed here in each of these days and this this ordering of creation is that there is an order to it. You can understand something about the stability to some degree of the universe. So uh, when the the scripture talks here about these lights uh, in the heavens that will be for signs and for seasons, you can mark out the world by these things. There's a, a sense of a certain amount of predictability that comes with the, the natural order that ought to cause you then to understand something about the faithfulness of God. So if you look at Psalm 74, for instance, talks about this, the order of the universe pointing to the, the stability of God. Or Jeremiah 31, where uh, God is talking about his promise in the same way that there's this stability of day and night and, and seasons with one another. That regularity points you to something about God, which is why, for instance, you can have uh, something like agriculture or uh, medicine or, or really any other human endeavor. If there were no predictability at all, uh, to the universe, you wouldn't be able to do that. You couldn't plant seed if you don't know if uh, if tomorrow uh, seed will still work the way that it did yesterday. Uh, no one uh, goes to bed every night wondering, when I wake up in the morning, will there be one sun or three? Uh, will, will I be in a four-dimensional universe or a seven-dimensional universe? You, you don't do that. There's a regularity to the universe uh, around you. But that regularity and that predictability is provisional. Now, there's, there's a reason why, for instance, that God is telling us that he is saying, let there be light before he is creating on day four uh, the sun and the moon. Well, this is because God is, is showing there's a permanence, relatively speaking, to the sun and the moon. Uh, the scripture will use that elsewhere. Uh, Psalm 89, for instance, uh, promises as long as the moon endures. But this is not like these sorts of pagan religions that will see uh, the sun and the moon and the, the stars as being deities, as being gods, as being uh, permanent in and of themselves. That's why later on you're going to see in what Jesus is revealing to John that uh, there's... Um, there's a light that is present in the final creation, in the new creation, that is not dependent upon the sun. There, there is no need for a sun there because the lamb is the light. And, and so, and it's also why you see this uh, language that is used in, in scripture 
Matthew 24, for instance, uh, talking about the, the heavens shaken and the moon turned to blood. Now, what that's not talking about, you can see a, a lot of these end times fraudsters that, that, that are constantly perennially with us who will come out and say, oh, well, we have a blood moon, a moon that is uh, red in color. That means that the, the coming of, of Jesus is right around the corner of this date or that date, and so send me a check. Uh, that's not what the scripture is saying. What he's saying there is this order that seems as though it is uh, permanent and will be, as the apostle Peter would put it, tomorrow will be just like today, only more so. That's not the case. The heavens are shaken. And so you can see, for instance, when Jesus is being crucified, there is darkness in the middle of the day. Uh, that, that, that's not normal. Uh, in the same way when Jesus is born, there are signs in the heavens. This is something that is extraordinary. Uh, so, so God is ordering his creation with predictability and with a sense of unpredictability because he's the creator. He's not subject to his creation. He is the one who is behind it. And so if you, if you look at what is happening here in, in each of these orderly days, you see something that the scripture tells us elsewhere is defined according to the mystery of Christ and Everything is defined in terms of the mystery of Christ. So notice, for instance, when God is talking about um, vegetation and seed-bearing vegetation. I mean, this is really important because when we come throughout the rest of, of Scripture, you're going to see this language being used of Israel, for instance, as a vine and as a vine that is not... Uh, yielding fruit. So uh, now that's a problem, God says, for his own name. Because if you look at, for instance, what the Proverbs say, uh, they say if you pass by a field and you see it's covered over with weeds and nettles, uh, what are you going to conclude? You're going to conclude that the, the person who's working that land is not being faithful to it. And so God says, I planted this vine, my people, and they're not bearing fruit. Well, why? Jesus then comes onto the scene and says, I am the vine and you are the branches. So the the very way that God is ordering the universe is to give you an image, to, to give you a picture of something that is fundamentally at the core of everything. So I think that, for instance, when Jesus says, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit, John 12. I'm, I'm translating back into King James. I'm sorry, that's how I, <laughs> that's how I learned uh, everything, how I memorized everything. When, when Jesus is saying that, I, I don't think what he's doing is simply saying, you see this illustration in nature and my death, burial, and resurrection is kind of like that. I think it's the other way around. I think that God designed the agricultural order in order to point toward that mystery of a crucified, buried, and resurrected Christ. And again, even in that, you see the order and the mystery together. 
So Isaiah will talk about, uh, for instance, that you can, uh, even somebody who doesn't have any uh, direct special revelation from God can figure out how to plant seed, how to harvest uh, produce that comes from that seed, but that this is God's doing. There's an orderliness and a predictability to it. But there's also a mystery to it. Think think of the way that Jesus uses this language. You scatter seed, and then you go to sleep, and while you're asleep, uh, God is is bringing forth the, the the crop, bringing forth the fruit. Jesus is using that as a an analogy in terms of spiritual realities. Well, well, that's true. There's a a way that God is working in in bringing forward vegetation where a lot of it is subterranean to us. We we don't see it as it is happening, uh, and yet God is bringing it. Forward. This is this is part of the way that God is creating the universe as this arena uh, for His glory and for the glory of Christ. And then you keep going until you come to day five and day six, where you have the creation of uh, what we would uh, think of as creatures, as animals, sea animals, and land animals, and uh, birds of the sky here on day five and day six before we move to the creation of human beings. Now, This is also important because as we move through the text of Genesis, and especially once we get into Exodus and beyond, we're going to see uh, the place of animals in what God is doing in terms of redemption, the shedding of blood. Leviticus, the life is in the blood. And even here, you see God having this um, sense of similarity between human beings and animals, that they have the breath of life, for instance, that's different from, for instance, human beings and and plants, and yet a marked difference in the dominion that we'll talk about later on, the the naming uh, ability, the image of God in in everything that that means, uh, that that we know of. There's uh, There's a similarity and intentional because I think God designed that similarity in order to, uh, for instance, when there is the sacrificial lamb, that's very different, as we'll talk about when we talk about Cain and Abel, from giving uh, a sacrifice of one's uh, produce. Uh, Very different in terms of the shedding of blood, in terms of the, the yielding up of life. There can be a connection made and an analogy made. I remember we had in the organization uh, that I work for, uh, they were doing uh, interviews with uh, various uh, philosophers about uh, different things, and they were talking to uh, a Catholic philosopher about issues of human dignity, and he used the language of human beings as animals. I remember there are all sorts of people. I can't believe that you let him say that human beings were animals. Well, what he meant by animals is in that that particular philosophical sense of dividing everything into animal, vegetable, mineral. So he was saying human beings are animated. They're they're not uh, rocks. They're not things. They're not plants. He wasn't saying that they're beasts or that they're, they're, they're connected in any way to beasts. So it depends on how you're using that word animals. If you're talking about animation or if you're talking about uh, what we typically think of when we think of in 
in, in common language, being animalistic. Uh, human beings here are infinitely distinct from animals, uh, so much so that the scripture uh, later on is going to warn about the possibility of human beings acting like animals, sometimes in terms of um, of specific animals, like a, a dog, uh, for instance, and sometimes in terms of just acting animalistic, acting like a beast, like an unreasoning beast. Uh, think of Nebuchadnezzar uh, acting like an animal on all fours, or uh, in terms of that predatory nature uh, of animals. If you think of the way that uh, Paul warns the church in Galatians 5, don't, don't bite at one another unless you uh, devour one another. So there's a, there's a warning. You are not a beast. Do not act like a beast. And we'll see why uh, when we come to uh, Genesis chapter 3, why that is particularly a problem. The other issue here is when you're looking at all of these creative acts, uh, one of the things that you're seeing is a removal of a kind of fear of those things as being ultimate. I mean, we, we sometimes forget just how much some human cultures have been paralyzed with fear over the stars and, and, and the moon. Uh, you can see that a little bit now in terms of people who are sort of living their lives according to astrology and, and horoscopes and, and what have you. But previous generations uh, would have been often paralyzed with, with fear by what they saw happening. See, see their entire lives as being dictated by the stars, even more so when you come to the issue of the animal order. God here is creating everything, the birds in the sky, the, the, the creatures of the deep. You know, that, that is something that is uh, terrifying to people who are uh, seafaring people because you don't know what's in the water. You just think about the fact even now we're finding new sorts of, uh, of uh, sea life uh, all the time. Uh, and some of this sea life looks bizarre or, or even uh, scary. It seems even the, the deeper you go in looking at it, sometimes the more alien-like uh, the sea life becomes. God is creating all of that. God is, God is doing it. The, the beasts of the land, God is creating them, everything that, that crawls across the earth. So you have to remember what it is like to be a person, a pre-modern person who understands and takes seriously animal predation, uh, that, that I could be killed by an animal. When you look at, for instance, how many people around the world, even right now, are killed in hippopotamus attacks. We don't think about that because we think of hippos. Uh, we think about it in terms of seeing them at the zoo, or we think about them in terms of um, cartoon uh, animals. But this is a terrifying reality for, for most, uh, most cultures that aren't living in this sort of uh, North American, Western European, or industrialized uh, sorts of places. Well, that's, that's the typical default of uh, human beings throughout human history which is why it's so extraordinary that you have Jesus when he's out in the wilderness, out in the desert. Mark is careful to tell us, and he was with the wild beasts. Jesus 
is demonstrating this lordship over the the animal order, over these this unpredictable uh, sort of mysterious aspect of animal life. God is creating all of that. God is is Lord over all of that. You know, I think we can probably see a little bit of this right now, uh, not in terms of what we would think of as an animal, but it is a, a life form. Uh, as I'm recording this right now, the entire world basically is on lockdown uh, because of a, a dangerous, deadly virus, uh, a pandemic that's taking place. I hope that by the time you listen to this, Whenever you listen to it, this is just all history to you. I really hope that that's the case. Uh, but right now, there's a lot of uncertainty. People don't know what's going to happen if this virus gets into one's uh, bloodstream. And it's sort of a reminder to people of the fact that we we really are vulnerable to uh, other creatures uh, in uh, this universe. Well, Genesis is showing us God's sovereignty over all all of those uh, realities. And then he moves to this distinct creation of humanity, the man and the woman. I want us to save that because we're going to look at this uh, section of Genesis chapter one, but I want us to do that next time when we look together with Genesis chapter two as well and see all of it together in terms of God creating, God blessing, and God commissioning uh, human beings. So we'll, we'll save that you have these six days where there's all of this creative activity. And then when you come to the beginning of chapter two, there is the seventh day that's that's different. God's blessing it and making it unique because there is a ceasing of this creative activity. Now, let me just say here, there are some subsections of Christians uh, where they have uh, tumultuous controversies over the relation of the Sabbath uh, here in uh, Genesis 2 and then elsewhere in Exodus uh, 20 uh, with the Lord's Day, uh, with uh, Sunday as a a day of uh, Christian worship. I'm not going to get into those controversies. I I remember being one time at a conference. It was a group I wasn't all that familiar with, and there was uh, someone in that conference that was really upset because there had been an image uh, in some Sunday school literature that had Moses holding up two tablets of the law, and he wanted to say it's not two tablets, it's one tablet uh, on on either side. And I thought, why is this an issue? And someone said, well, this group split off from another group where they have differences over the Sabbath. And even though both of these groups, their Sundays really look just like one another, they sort of create their tribal boundaries uh, over this and and send uh, fiery uh, emails and letters back and forth. Could do. I don't have any interest in doing that right now. Those are important questions, uh, but that's not what I want to talk about uh, right here. Instead, I think what we see here is a number of things that are going to be important in the, the rest of Scripture. One of those things is that God's creative activity culminates in holiness, in the the setting apart of a a day that is not defined by creative activity, but is defined by God's rejoicing in all that he has made and all that he has uh, declared to be good. Now, this is important. Regardless of 
how necessarily you see the the Sabbath day in terms of the weekly ordering of humanity uh, applying to the Christian right now. What what God is revealing here is what Jesus is going to say later on when he says the Sabbath, uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, he means he means several things: the the superiority of mercy over over a, a legalistic application of the law. That's certainly one of those things. But also in terms of saying what it means to really be human. And I've been thinking about that a lot just in in recent years. There's a poet whose work I enjoy a lot, David White, who talked about the tendency to only see people who are moving at the same velocity as you are. And so he's he's talking about the reason, for instance, that the elderly are often um, ignored. It's not that people despise the elderly. It's just that they see the elderly as being irrelevant because they're not moving at the same speed. And you think about the way that so much of modern life, and and even before that, pre-modern life would do this too, that would sort of see human existence as being justified by the bustle of one's business or busyness. And um, that, that, that can be true not just of a person. It can be true of a church. It can be true of uh, an organization. It can be true of a family. And that's maybe even especially the case in this sort of technologically wired world that we live in where uh, there's this illusion of ceaseless activity uh, with smartphones and and other technology. And sometimes there's been a tendency of the church to think in order to be relevant, we have to keep up with that same frenetic uh, illusion of constant uh, energy. When in reality, there's this place for quietness and stillness that points us to something that is is built into the, the warp and woof of the universe itself, that God himself here is ceasing activity and declaring this day to be holy. God is not process. God instead, he's over time, he's sovereign over time, and he orders time in terms of the week, in terms of the seasons, in terms of uh, a lifetime. So when you see this, you see this uh, importance of time and ordering, but you see in this seventh day a pointing towards something that is better than, than activity in, in the way that we, we think of it, that there's a uh, there's a peer out into something else. Now, I think about this a lot because of T.S. Eliot's uh, Four Quartets, uh, a series of, of poems dealing with these issues of time. And uh, one of the important uh, emphases in the Four Quartets is this understanding of time is a ravager in a lot of ways. I'm thinking about this right now as I just came up from uh, being uh, downstairs with my children, and they had been watching these uh, old uh, home videos 
the oldest ones who are now about to turn 19 years old, uh, were on there as little little babies uh, wandering around in their rooms. And then the others uh, we could see as, as babies coming home from the hospital and, and so forth. And I just sat there and said, it, it, it's gone so quickly. And when, when people said to me, uh, when we first, uh, when we adopted our first two children and then when our, our third son was born, uh, people would say, enjoy every minute because it goes by so fast. And I thought, yeah, 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 that's what people say. Now I'm realizing they were completely right. That is exactly what happens. Uh, time changes things and time ultimately uh, leads to this sense of um, things passing away and things being uh, temporary. Uh, there's a, a sense of, of loss that comes along with that. Well, what God is demonstrating in the way he has organized the universe is that time is not ultimate and that as Elliot is pointing out, time destroys, but redemption is found in time. God comes to us in Jesus Christ, who not only takes on flesh, but he takes on, uh, he takes on a place and a point in history. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, the, the creed uh, says. Sabbath points us to that, and it also points us to this sense of rest. Now, when I say rest, I realize that there are some people, uh, I had uh, one person who, who said to me, uh, that he hated Sundays. He's a Christian, and he's trying to get over this, but he doesn't like Sundays because when he was growing up, Sunday was all about what you could not do. And so everyone was constantly looking around to say, wait a minute, you're not playing with marbles, are you? You can't do that on the Lord's Day. Wait a minute, you're not. And he, for him, Sunday seemed to be so joyless and uh, as he put it, in black and white when the rest of the week was in color. That is not at all the sense of rest that is being uh, presented uh, here and elsewhere as God is revealing the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, if you want to see what God means by rest and, and where he says later, there, there yet remains a rest for the people of God, it is not boring sitting around and, and not doing anything. Solomon is said to have rest from all of his enemies uh, because they're all under his feet. There's a, a sense of celebration and a sense of joy. And the seventh day here points to purpose, that everything else that God has created up to this point is headed in a direction, and that direction is holy and blessed. And I think this is why when you come to uh, the book of Revelation and uh, John says, he who has ears to hear, let him understand, understand how to calculate the number of the beast. And that number is 666. There are all sorts of ways that People have, have come in and tried to find a secret code to 666, and, and I think there, there is a way that, that John is referencing some of the things that are going on at the time in terms of the, the Roman Empire. But beyond that, I think the larger scriptural point is that if you make that sixth day ultimate, if you make humanity ultimate, if, if humanity is the end point for you, and 
What it means to be human defines everything else. Sixth day, sixth day, sixth day. You make that ultimate. Then the end result is that you become like an animal. You become beast-like. You, you become predatory and you have no future or no good future. But the seventh day is realizing that all of the days before it have to be defined and understood in terms of God's holiness, God's new creation, God's, uh, God's glory, uh, and not the other way around. And, and that's why, again, if you come back to judgment, notice what God is doing with each of these, uh, each of these days and with each aspect of these days, God saw that it was good. There's an evaluation and a celebrating evaluation of, of each part of what God is doing in terms of creating the universe in which we now dwell. God sees it as good. He has created it. And when you think about this orderliness and this mystery, well, where's it all headed? Well, it's all headed in Ephesians chapter 1, everything being gathered up, everything being joined and united in Christ so that you, you still have distinctions. We have distinctions here, male and female, land and sea, heaven and earth, but you have those distinctions that are joined together in Jesus, and you have the, the heavenly reality and the material reality coming together in Jesus, who is, uh, who is human still. He has joined himself permanently uh, with humanity, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God is fully dwelling with us in the person of Jesus Christ, and you see an order and a mystery at the same time. So the God who comes to us in what may seem to be chaos, is a God who is bringing about an order, but it is an order that we could not track out on our own. Uh, we have to see revealed in the mystery of Jesus Christ, and it is good. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Paul says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That mystery is beginning to be told uh, right here in this first word that God gives us in Genesis. Well, next time we will come back and talk about this creation of humanity, and humanity is male and female. What does it mean to have dominion over everything? Is that as scary as it sounds? And so I'll look forward to talking to you then. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, please give us a, a review or a rating on uh, at the Apple uh, Podcast uh, Store, and we will see you next time. This is Russell Moore. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?